I have a question for you. And you can share with the person next to you, the person you came with, you can make a new friend, it doesn't matter. The question is this, it's a very easy question. Of all the movies you've ever seen, who is your favourite character? Not actor, but character. And why? See, I told you it was easy, right? You'll go, are you kidding? Give me a God question. This is awful. All right, so who's the favourite character? You don't have to share with me. Just talk with each other. Talk with somebody around you. Turn around, make some new friends. Who's your favourite character in any movie and why? I'll give you a couple of minutes to think and chat about that. struggling with the question who's is like oh I don't know too many none spring to mind I went with the first one that came to my mind so I asked myself the question I'm the first one that came to my mind so I'm not proud of the fact that this was the first thing that came to my mind I'm not even saying you should go and watch the movie uh, attached to this, um, but it's all about authenticity and honesty and us being who we are, right? So this is part of that. Um, There was a movie in 2006 called 300. Has anyone seen that? Ori, good. So just the pastors. (laughs) It's not good. So the, the... the lead character in that was a guy by the name of, it was Gerard Butler, and he played this guy called Leonidas. And Leonidas was part of a nation called Sparta. And Sparta were unde- uh, uh, undefeatable. They were this, this small pocket of people that had a profound impact on the world. And it was because of their tenacity and their passion and their, their forthrightness. So they went to war against Persia and all these other giant nations and they defeated them. And as you watch this character unfold, you're drawn in to admire and respect not him, but the nation he's part of. So whilst you really appreciate his leadership and the way he does all the things, you're actually, your, your heart, your allegiance starts to be for the kingdom that he represents. And that's what I think we want in a good main character. They lead us to the point where we're not just infatuated or amazed or revered by them, but they represent and they hold something far greater, far bigger, that we can tap into and perhaps benefit from or relate or understand or be um, uh, compelled by. Compelling characters in stories, they lead us to understand something far bigger than themselves. They enable us to see something we've never previously appreciated. And today I'm going to tell you two stories. Two stories, and the two stories have the same elements. It's actually quite crazy. They're right next to each other in the scriptures, and they both involve a lot of risk, a lot of money, a lot of devotion, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of drama. But the central character... In both of these stories, it is very different. In the first story, the central character is very different than the central character in the second story. They both come out of our reading. So as a church, we've been reading through the Bible, reading through the New Testament. If you'd like to be part of that, you can grab the details on the desk on the way out. It's a Bible app. And so we've been reading a chapter of the New Testament each week. And yesterday, we read Matthew 26. And these two stories come out of Matthew 26. So here's the first. Matthew 26, verse 6 to 13. 
Uh, if you think Matthew 26, when we get to late Matthews, we're talking about Jesus approaching the cross. We're talking about that resurrection week. We're talking about all the, the really, really significant things of the Christian faith are about to unfold. So this is just as that starts to happen. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head. As he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been used and been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done something beautiful to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, She did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, where this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it turns out that was true, because that's what we're talking about today, right? So, picture that scene. Jesus and the disciples, they're reclining at tables. That's what they did. They laid on one, they laid down and rested on one shoulder, one elbow, as they ate. And in this woman walks with an alabaster jar. Now to us, we go, oh, that's kind of nice and it's good that it's got a name. But to that culture, an alabaster jar was very, very um, significant. It was an exquisite jar that only held really expensive perfume. That was its, its thing. And if you could think, well, what did it look like? It was about so big. Too bad if you're listening on the audio. Um, it was this translucent kind of pottery. So it had this, this brilliance of light. It would refract the light. So the jar itself was a work of art, but in it was the real wealth. And in it was this perfume. And we're told elsewhere that the perfume in it was the equivalent to a year's wage. Now, we're not going to go around and see how much everybody makes. But if we went with the, the bottom line, average minimum Australian wage, it's about 40000 so if you're trying to go, all right, how, how expensive is that perfume? That's sort of the value, minimum value of what was in this jar, that she walks into the room, all men, and walks up to Jesus and does the unthinkable. She, she bends down, she starts with his head, and she starts to pour the perfume onto him. Now, it wasn't like a... There we go, we're done. It was a a very intimate, beautiful moment where she tended to Jesus. And she would have taken portions of this perfume and began to, to in a sense, wash his body, cleanse his body with it, starting with his head and his hair. She took such time and love and devotion. And as she did this, the other disciples around the table looked at what was happening and went, that looks really familiar to how you would anoint a body for burial. It was reminiscent of this. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. (laughs) She clearly doesn't know what's going on, right? What a waste. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, at this point, we find out that Matthew is a whole lot kinder than, say, John or Luke or Mark, because those guys tell us who said those words. They tell us it was Judas. Like they leave Judas to hang out and drive. But Matthew was a bit kinder. He's like, and the disciples said. So there was this kind of thinking that, that what had happened is this, is this craziness of what, what had taken place. But, but the reason why it was Judas is Judas looked after the money, right? So he was a money guy. He was an accountant in a sense. And he was also known for taking a little bit extra 
out of the out of the disciples collective pot if he needed something or to help out someone just at his discretion so so when he spurts out this comment his heart's saying something different his heart is saying this is outrageous because it's not something we can all benefit from right what's happening here what Jesus, what Jesus this woman is doing to Jesus that is outrageous I'm outraged because I can't benefit from it too but you can't say that right you, you don't say that if you want to get shot. So, so he says something else. He says this perfume could have been sold at a high price and paid for a heap of poor people to not be poor anymore. So he takes the holy road out, right? He's trying to be holy, um, but when actually his heart has drifted from God. Because all the woman wanted to do was bless Jesus. It was just the devotion of her heart. For her to bring this perfume that means so much and bless Jesus. And she did it because she had no one else that could benefit from this heirloom. You see, perfume that was kept in an alabaster jar was the the hallmarks of an heirloom, a family heirloom. So you would pass it on from generation to generation. It was a security. If things turned really bad, you could sell it and you, you would be fine financially. And so she takes this heirloom. There is no son There is no husband for a potential son for her to pass it on to, which is why she brings it to Jesus that day. Her life would have been tough. The the way their culture was set up, if there was no man in the picture, it would have been really, really tough for her. And that money that she could have sold and paid for whatever she liked as she was completely entitled to would have made her life not, not so much comfortable, but sustainable, right? But for her, it was different. I was at a, a, a meeting this week, and I bumped into a guy I hadn't seen for a long time who works for an organisation called Open Doors. And Open Doors go into the hardest countries in the planet, and they work with the persecuted Christians. And so he's starting to tell me some of these stories. And he's like, oh, no, this might, like, I'm like, no, 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 give me more, give me more. We need to be more exposed to persecution, right? And some of the stories he was coming up with, not coming up with, he was sharing were just like, oh, my gosh, we have it so comfortable. And one of those stories was of a father in Vietnam um, in, uh, who was a Christian, and they had a three-week-old baby. And because of their faith, the, um, the persecutors, whoever they were, said, we're going to take that baby from you and kill it. And he's in this thing and something happened that broke the tension and he fled into the jungle where he lived for three weeks with his wife and their three-week-old baby, right? And then later on, he's talking to the guy that was talking to me and sharing his story. And the guy that was telling the story says to the Vietnamese Christian, says, why? Following Jesus is of such high risk. You almost lost your son why? Why do you follow? Where does that come from? And the guy said back to him, he says, because I love Jesus. I'm devoted to him. Like, it's not a question of why. Like, are you kidding? I love Jesus. Jesus is my all. I trust Jesus for everything. Both that Vietnamese Christian and the woman with the alabaster jar, they'd found Something in Jesus that had truly transformed them. Their hearts were bursting with love for Jesus. They saw his majesty. They saw his beauty and his love and his wonder. And they were overwhelmed with this gratitude for what he'd done, for who he was. 
and it drove them to do completely culturally inappropriate things. You do not do that with an alabaster jar of perfume. You just don't do it. You do not take your three-week-old son and go, instead of renounce my faith and step away from that, I'm going to live in the jungle until it's free. You just don't do that. But their hearts were so convinced that they were loved by God that, of course, it seemed completely appropriate. And so this unfolds and we hear what Jesus has to say. He says, why are you bothering this woman? He says that to his closest mates, right? His disciples, the ones that should get it. What? Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Like what? Do you know, you only prepare a body for burial when the body is dead, right? You don't do it to someone that's living. And you only did it if you were close to that person and and if you felt they had a right to it. So this woman is seeing a much bigger picture. She's assisting Jesus to move towards his final triumph. Her devotion was more about Jesus' death than her own life. How beautiful is that? was more about what Jesus was going to do on the cross than about anything she could gain. She was sacrificing her future well-being. She was putting it all on the table, in almost in a literal sense, for the death that Jesus was about to undergo. She is the preview to the church of what Christianity looks like. That's why her story was retold and retold and retold. Because when they lost their way, they said, no, no, that's what it looks like. To be completely enamoured with Jesus. To forsake everything for what he did on the cross. That's what we're called to. See, we live in the aftermath of Jesus' death. Which is, is a completed with a resurrection. Where Jesus disempowers death. Where he robs it of its finality. He's resurrected back to life. A life of brilliance and glory and triumph and overcoming. A life that is eternal. And then he invites us in. He says, be part of this life. Share in this life. Join me in this life. Everybody today is invited in and beckoned in and coaxed in to that life. We're meant to have that life that Jesus won for us. And that life, when we start to journey it with Jesus, it breeds in us this devotion that seems to trump everything. Even stuff that is culturally inappropriate. And so we shake, we shake our heads at this woman. We're like, How? How could you actually do that? How could you with so little be willing to give up so much? And the answer is simple and it's impossible. She was captured by the love of God. It's just the way it was. The love of God causes people to do ridiculous things. The woman takes what was her inheritance to enable her to live a prosperous life contained in this alabaster jar, and she pours the contents over Jesus. She is saying, I exchanged the hope that I can have in my inheritance for the certainty and the promise I get with a godly inheritance. She's exchanging her inheritances. She's like, I'm not putting my faith in this world and the things that it can give and the way that economy works. I'm putting my trust and my hope in you, Jesus, and I'm going to show it. I'm going to blow the nest egg on you. And she does that. 
It wasn't just a nice idea. She's like, this would be great. Her theology dictated her choices. And when your theology dictates your choices, you know that you love God. So, here's the question. Who in the story of the alabaster jar was the central character? And we've already done a rubbish job of working out what central characters are in movies, right? So, have a chat, have a think. Person next to you, who is the central character in the story that we've just talked through? Go, I'll give you 30 seconds. To the second story, which is straight after the first one. It's the next verse, right? The next verse. And it's really important we see it's the next verse. It's not like later on in the chapter or later on in the book or down the track. It's the very next verse. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one who was called, have a guess. Judas. It's like, it's that guy again. Judas Iscariot. So Matthew's like, oh, hang on. I gave him a, no, no, we'll put names next to this. He went to the chief priests and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. It's the next story, right? This is crazy. He literally gets up from the meal and enters in to this next story. He goes to the chief priests and he says something that he would very soon regret causing him to take his own life. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, it's really important that we understand what's going on for Judas, right? Because it's easy for us to guess at what's happening for Judas and get it wrong because he's not actually totally the bad guy, right? He believed in Jesus. He really did believe in Jesus. But like all the disciples up to this point, he was more interested in his personal preservation and benefit. We see it really starkly, but all the disciples were in the same boat. They they wanted to get ahead. They didn't realize that it wasn't something malicious. They're like, how can we get ahead by following Jesus? Right? So they say, how can we sit next to you on your throne? Like that's all about how do we get ahead? So Judas isn't at this point such a bad, bad guy. Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah and believed that the Messiah would overthrow Rome by force, right? That's why he was assimilating his army. It's similar to the money collectors. We talked about money collectors last week in the temple. Same heart, same same perspective. Um, they, they talked about the temple is obsolete what do you, because, the, because the Messiah is coming to overthrow Rome by force. Rome was the, the superpower of the day. But the way things were shaping up, right? So think Jesus, think Judas at that meal, The way things were shaping up is it did not look like Jesus was going to get around to it any day soon. It's like, Jesus, you're just wasting our time. Come on, chop, chop, we're ready to go. And then the woman comes in and anoints his head, anoints his body for burial. That doesn't seem too dramatic and overcoming and triumphant, does it? It's like, no, 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 no. The story is not going down that route. If he dies, the whole thing's dead. It's all finished. It's off the table. So he goes to see if he can benefit from starting a revolution. 
You see, Judas doesn't want Jesus to die. Judas wants Jesus to fire up. He wants to provoke things to fire Jesus up. So he thinks, I can make a bit of a profit on the side. Then when the time is right, we'll put Jesus in this position where his only choice is to respond by force. Right? We'll just get him at the right moment and Jesus is going to have no other. And we're going to have this revolution. We're going to see things turned on their head and Jesus reigns in his kingdom. It's going to be amazing. So he goes and he asks for money. Now, can you recall how much money he, he, he didn't ask for money? How much money were they going to give him? 30 pieces of silver. That's about six weeks wages, if you're wondering what that is. But it was also the cost of a slave in the Hebraic culture. And that's fascinating. Jesus enslaves himself to his own agenda. Because that's what our desires do to us. We bargain with them. They capture us. And we worship them. And we start to see some powerful parallels between Judas' story and the woman with the alabaster jar. The woman comes to Jesus. Judas flees from Jesus. The woman is radically generous toward Jesus. Judas seeks to gain from Jesus. The woman risks her livelihood to prepare Jesus for his death. Judas improves his livelihood to provoke Jesus' death. The woman exchanges her inheritance for God's inheritance. Judas exchanges God's inheritance for his inheritance. The woman is overcome with devotion toward Jesus and Judas is overcome with devotion toward Judas. So... Who's the main character of this story? It's obvious, I hope. We have these two brilliantly opposing stories. They're meant to stop us in our tracks and go, which story is mine? Which story is mine? Because in one story, Jesus is the central character and in the other, Judas is the central character. In one story, Jesus is the central character. In another story, we are the central character. It leaves us with the question, who is the central character in your story? Are we following Jesus around with an alabaster jar, looking for ways to pour out our lives, pour out our all for him? Or are we adopting a position where we hope to gain from following Jesus? I want to show you how difficult this is. This isn't easy, right? This isn't one of those messages you go, oh, I'm just going to jump over with the lady with the alabaster bar. Like, we get hijacked by the Judas stuff all the time. Linda and I, we've been married for 18 years. Killed it. And when we got married, we went, we want to um, just put ourselves into our careers. We don't, we don't want to have kids yet. So we did that. And we did that for 10 years. And at the end of that, we felt like, oh, we want to have kids now. And so we, um, we went through, um, you do a lot of practicing with that. And then we found... <laughs> Then we found that we couldn't, right? It was biologically nearly impossible for us to actually have kids. And so we went down the IVF route. And as we're going down the, the IVF route, um, we came to a startling conclusion. You see, we've been praying to get pregnant. We'd asked others to pray that we get pregnant. We went and, and sought out people who were really like powerful prayers and asked them to pray for us that we'd become pregnant. We were constantly trying to convince God that children was the best plan for
for us to go forward, right? And at that time, it absolutely was that way until one day that broke. It broke. You see, to worship God is to do and to live and to be what he wants you to do and to live and to be. And so in the last round of IVF, we realised that it was actually highly unlikely we were actually going to get pregnant. And when we realised that, our agenda changed. And it was like God allowed us to get right to that point where we could see beyond our desires and see that there was a God on the other side that regardless of what happened, that God still loved us, still cared for us. That that the things we were caught up in and thought were super, super important. God's like, I know they're important, but what's more important is that you bless me and you love me and you worship me and you follow me. Not the desires of your heart, even those those things are good. We've become so blinded by what we wanted from God that we became blind to who God was. God, through his grace, took us full circle to realise it didn't matter if we had kids or not. What mattered is that we were faithful to who God called us to be and to do what God called us to do. And that launched us into this whole new way of looking at our lives and thinking about God and going, okay, so what does the future look like now in the space of that? God had coaxed us out of the Judah story, Judah story, and he'd welcomed us in to the alabaster jar story. And only God can do that. Because of his love, he doesn't want us to be stuck in a place where we're so consumed with what we think we need from God. To a place where we say, I'm going to pour myself out from God because I love God. We were trying to force God into giving us the change we wanted to see, which was completely about us and about what God wanted us to do. Instead of breaking out that perfume and giving God everything. And in the space of those few days, it was literally a few days where we both felt this heart change, this significant heart shift of like, oh wow it's not about adapting God to what we need, it's about us adapting to what God needs and when we did that a crazy, crazy thing happened we got pregnant go figure now, as I say, a few, a few footnotes on this I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for everything we should pray crazily for everything but do so with the longing that God would show us his will and we would pray according to that. That we would do a constant check in ourselves of, oh God, am I, is it me that I want this or is it for your benefit? And, I, and I'm not saying that, that if you just stop praying, ta-da, everything happens. Right? Don't, don't take that away. The, the, the greatest desire God has for us is to be consumed by his love and his will. And I'm not saying it's easy. It is so hard. We had this, this, this moment where it felt like simultaneously our hearts had broken and been set free. It's just like, what? This is awful and yet I'm free. Huh? What I am saying is that the story God wants you to live is the one where he plays the main character. Because we are rubbish at being the main character of our stories, right? We're just not up to the task. We were never made to be or built to be or created to be up to the task. That's God's role. The greatest story we can be a part of isn't our own. It's actually God's. So when you find yourself in Jesus' story and decide that he needs to be the main 
character, that's when the adventure really begins. So the woman concerns herself with what was most important to Jesus. And her story is so incredible that it's retold and retold and retold and retold even today. We don't even know her name. But wow, we get to retell the story. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Because that's what it means to pour yourself out for Jesus. Judas concerns himself with using Jesus to get what he wants. And what he wants isn't a bad thing. That's not the point. But he uses Jesus to to see this movement take place that he's itching to be involved in, but he doesn't understand. And he totally self-destructs under the weight of what he takes on board. Later on in Matthew, like the next chapter, it says, "When When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned... Fascinating language, right? So Judas looks on this and goes, he's, he's done. Huh. It's all over. And I caused it. I caused it. I, I didn't mean for that to happen. He was seized with remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned for I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. And he could have turned back to Jesus then. But Peter the same dilemma and he turned back to Christ and he could have. Instead he threw the money into the temple he left and then he went away and he hung himself. The main character of your story determines the quality of your story, the impact of your story and here's the best bit, the conclusion of your story. So which story? Which story? Let's, let's ask God. God we all want to live with just the the tenacity and the, the, the passion and the devotion of that woman. And yet so often we find ourselves in Judas's shoes. God, this way, call us into your story. Call, call us into the story where you are the main character. Where our thoughts and our actions, the cry of our heart, the prayers that we pray, are more about what your agenda is than ours. It's more about worshipping you and blessing you and giving you because we love you than it is about anything else. And Lord, strangely, that is part of our our direction or the orientation of our heart, but we are powerless to do that without the indwelling of your spirit, Lord. And so we just want to pause for a few moments and ask that your spirit would empower us, would address any of the wrong story that's in us and would help us step toward that story. So Lord, we just pray you would speak to us right now.